All right, please take your Bibles and turn them with me uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. It was a dark time in Jerusalem. After reigning for 52 years, King Uzziah died. He was a good king, he was a godly king, and the people were blessed by God because of Uzziah, and you can imagine the sense of sadness and despair that the people would have had in that dark moment, especially the godly people like Isaiah, who surely must have wondered what would happen now to the nation, now that the godly king was dead. And in that dark moment, Isaiah experienced a light, a glory that would change his life forever. I read about it at the beginning of the service this morning from Isaiah chapter 6, where in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the real king. He saw the Lord as king, sitting upon his throne in glory. And even the angels themselves, so overwhelmed by God's glory that all they could do was cover their faces and and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 700 years later, the apostle John recalled Isaiah's vision. And as he writes, he shows us not only how the writings of Isaiah pointed to Christ, but that when Isaiah himself saw the glory of the Lord, Isaiah saw Christ. It says in John chapter 12, verse 41, you can look there with me, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 700 years later, after Isaiah had that vision of the glorious king, this king, the one whom Isaiah spoke of, rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His triumphal entry, which we read about earlier in chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago. And the people are swept away in messianic fervor, and they're waving the palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save now, even the king of Israel. They are ready for political and national freedom. They are ready for Jesus to drive out the Romans. But Jesus was on a totally different wavelength. Jesus rides into Jerusalem not on a steed of war, but on a donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, which declares Messiah to be king, yes, but a humble king bringing peace. And it also declares Messiah to be king not just of Israel, but of the Gentiles, even the whole world. And Jesus shocks everyone by revealing that He will begin His global reign not by killing His enemies, but by being killed by them. And so, He says in John 12, 24, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And if you go down to verse 32, he explains about that a little bit more. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's talking about crucifixion, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And this talk of death and a cross offends the people. And so, in verse 34, the crowd answers him, "Uh, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? 
And that's the question that is hanging in the air that brings us to our text today. Let's see how Jesus responds. Please stand with me now in reverence for the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 35 and read on down through the end of the chapter. God's Word says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, this was a hard sermon for me to put together. You know that. Father, this may be a hard sermon for people to hear. And not just because of the weakness of the preacher, but simply because of the hard things that your word says, how your word often hits us right between the eyes. Yet, Father, I thank you that you love us enough to Tell us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. So, Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart that is receptive to your holy and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, in answer to the, the people's question, who is this Son of Man, Jesus doesn't answer directly. He's already told them over and over and over again who he is. And as his public ministry to Israel comes to a close, he now urges them uh, one more time to respond rightly to who he is. The urgent question now is not, who is he? Jesus has already answered that. The question now is, what will you do with this Son of Man? 
And though the events recorded here happened 2,000 years ago, the sense of urgency communicated here has not lessened one bit. There are things here we learn about man. There are things we learn about God. There are things here that give us hope. And the first thing that I want us to notice in our, in our text today is uh, man's stubborn will in unbelief. Man's stubborn will in unbelief. Look at verse 35. So, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. In other words, my days are numbered. I'm going to die. And, and, and then he says, walk while you have the light. In other words, take advantage of this time. Learn from me. Receive this light while you have it because it's not always going to be here. Now, light for John in his book represents goodness and purity and truth and salvation. Indeed, light represents God himself. Darkness, on the other hand, represents sin, wickedness, spiritual confusion, judgment. Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. In other words, if you persist in this stubborn unbelief, if you persist in resisting the light, you will be overtaken. You will find yourself only in greater bondage to wickedness and spiritual confusion because rejecting God's light plunges you into a greater darkness. That's what he's saying. Rejecting God's light plunges you into a greater darkness. Now, the religious authorities, uh, the Pharisees, are perhaps the best example in the Bible of this danger. And I don't think the Pharisees themselves realized in the beginning how dark they would become and what they were actually capable of doing. And yet, as we read the story, in spite of Jesus' teaching, in spite of His miracles, uh, they constantly reject that light, and their deeds grow increasingly darker, and their hatred and opposition for Christ increasingly magnifies, it intensifies. Verse 37 says that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The verb there in the Greek is a continuous action verb. They continuously dug in their heels and refused to believe. Even after his greatest miracle up to this point, uh, the miracle of John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, how do they respond? They reject the light again, and they plot to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. These are religious men. These are, these are more outwardly moral people, men who supposedly love God. And now they are plotting murder in back rooms. The more they reject the light, the more dark they become. Why? What's, what's happening here? Well, John has already told us way back in chapter 3, where he writes in 319, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This was the attitude, not just of the Jewish leaders, but most of the Jewish nation. Some believed, but most refused him because they, because they wanted to refuse him. They loved the darkness more than the light. The, the light was glorious, but they'd rather stay in the shadows, and it was their choice. It was their will. Elsewhere in, in Matthew chapter 23, we find Jesus weeping over the holy city, and He cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together, and you were not willing. Now, I belabor this point because I want us to recognize that man is not merely a victim of sin and Satan. 
but that man is a co-conspirator with the powers of darkness against God. We love the darkness more than the light. We sin because we love it, because we will to do it. We want to do it. And apart from the grace of God, we are no better than the Pharisees. The Bible describes all of humanity in terms of darkness because we all are by nature sinners and rebels against God. And so Jesus' warnings here in John 12 apply even today. Do not reject the light lest you be plunged into a greater darkness. There are people, I've known them, you know them, they've had some exposure to the light, they've had some exposure to the truth, some exposure to Jesus. Some of them may even go to church regularly, they hear the Word preached, and yet often the people who are in the greatest peril are church people, religious people, outwardly moral people, and they hear about Christ, and they hear the gospel, and while they may be physically present, their hearts are far from God. Their hearts say no. They are willfully hardening their hearts against the lights and they don't know the peril that they are in, the peril of being plunged into further darkness. Or maybe it's not other people. Maybe it's you, my friend. If you have heard the truth about Christ, if you have heard the gospel, if you have repeatedly heard the gospel of Jesus, my plea to you is not to reject that light, lest you be plunged into greater darkness. Folks, it's not my words, it's Jesus' words. If you don't like it, take it up with Him. Don't put it off. Friend, don't stiff-arm Jesus yet again. Embrace the lights while there is yet time. Believe in Christ. Trust Him to the point of surrendering your life to Him and following Him and placing your, your hope in His sacrifice to deal with your sins and not your own good works. Accept while there is still time the gracious invitation that Jesus extends to you in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of lights. Verse 36 goes on to say that after saying these things, Jesus went and departed from them and hid himself from them. Now, that is essentially what will happen to everyone who will not turn to Christ, but instead chooses to remain in willful, stubborn rebellion, rejecting the loving call of Christ through His gospel. Eventually, friends, time runs out. You will, you will find yourself cut off from Him permanently in hell, plunged into what Jesus calls elsewhere an outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And how loving and how gracious of God that He has provided an offer of salvation from the darkness. Don't take that for granted. Stop committing spiritual suicide. And don't put it off till tomorrow. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. And so we see here in this text man's stubborn will and unbelief. We also discover something else very interesting. God's sovereign will in man's unbelief. God's sovereign will in man's unbelief. John now moves on <clears throat> to deal with a question that the first century church grappled with, namely that you've got Jesus coming to Israel as Israel's Messiah, offering himself to his own people, and his own people reject him. And this widespread catastrophic unbelief on the part of the nation was a significant hindrance to the conversion of Jews in the first century. 
if, if Jesus really was Israel's Messiah, if He really was, then how could so many in Israel, uh, how could they have missed it? That's the question. And in the minds of some, this puts a shadow of doubt on the authenticity of Jesus' claims and mission. Now, the Apostle John himself, under the inspiration of the Spirit, feels constrained to help his readers understand what is really going on. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, why? Keep reading. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, John there is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, and that is Isaiah's famous suffering servant passage fulfilled in Christ, the same passage that Jesus quoted earlier on Palm Sunday when he talks about being lifted up and exalted, the same passage that laments that the suffering servant would be rejected by the people. And John is telling us in verse 37 that the people do not believe Jesus, so that this prophecy might be fulfilled, the Isaiah 53 prophecy. And notice that John is not simply saying that God foretold that the rejection of Jesus would happen. He's not simply saying that that God knew about this in advance. He's actually saying more than that. Look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, you may want to underline that word in your Bible. Therefore, they could not believe. John is not just saying that the people would not believe, and indeed that is true. They they wouldn't believe. We just talked about man's willful stubbornness. But John is telling us here that the people could not believe. There's absolutely no way around this. It says the same thing in the Greek as it does in the English. And that makes some of you uncomfortable. But it's actually meant to give you great comfort. Because here's the big question that I think John wants to address here. And the question is, did God fail? Because let's be honest, folks. If Jesus really is Israel's Messiah, then it seems like Jesus, it seems like God has totally botched this mission and that evil men have bested God. Right? We read this story and we are, we are left to wonder, How could God's will be being achieved if He sends His only Son into the world to do everything that He did, to perform all these mighty works, to teach with great authority, to heal the sick and raise the dead? Then He goes to Jerusalem, the site of the temple, and He he presents Himself before the religious leaders. And still, after all of that, the religious leaders reject Him and the nation follows suit. So how in the world can God be achieving His will when all of that happens? And John's answer is, this is God's will. Through man's eyes, what is happening to Jesus looks like a complete and utter failure. But the Apostle John wants to tell his audience that what is happening here is all according to plan. The hardened will of the Pharisees and religious leaders manifested in their opposition to and rejection of Jesus. Not only, not only did they not thwart God's will, instead they actually achieved the sovereign will of God. Now, if you've got questions about that, 
know that the Apostle John anticipated questions. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he cites another passage in Isaiah to help us. Let's start at verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, so now John is telling us here that God is playing an active role in blinding the eyes and hardening the hearts of the people that are rejecting Jesus. And John here is is citing from Isaiah chapter 6. This was the chapter I opened with when Isaiah during this dark time was encouraged by the vision of the Lord sitting on His throne in glory. And and Isaiah is overwhelmed by the glory and holiness of God. And, And he says, Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. So Isaiah says, Yes, God, send me. I'll go to the people. And what will my ministry look like? God tells him in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And he said, in other words, God said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How's that for a ministry job description? You still want to serve God, Isaiah? Basically, the message of Isaiah would have a hardening effect on the people. They would become blind, spiritually speaking. They would become deaf. Now, now why? Is God being mean? No. He's being just. We need to recognize that God is not dealing with sweet, innocent people. He's not forcing good people to be hard in their hearts. He's not withholding His blessing and His salvation from people who are just so desperately wanting God and seeking after Him. God's not even dealing with morally neutral people. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, it becomes very clear what's going on and why. Isaiah describes a people who are stubbornly wicked in blatant rebellion against God. They are an idolatrous people. They are in complete and total apostasy. They've forsaken God. There's injustice in the land. There's oppression in the land. There's murder and bloodshed in the land. And despite the loving pleas of the Lord for them to repent, they stubbornly dig in their heels and refuse. Despite the light that they received from God, they would not listen. Despite the incredible signs and wonders that God had wrought among the people in delivering them from the land of Egypt during the Exodus, in spite of all the things that God had done for them, they were rejecting God. Despite hundreds of years of God's kindness and graciousness and love that that He has showered among them, they do not listen. Instead, they slide further and further into a cold-hearted rebellion against God. And that's the backdrop of Isaiah 6, where God says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see and hear and understand and turn and be healed. So what's God doing? God is doing exactly what He did to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Yes, you've got Pharaoh who he, he is hardening his own heart, right? The, the text tells us that 
in the book of Exodus. He is hardening his own heart because he wants to be Lord. But you have God also turning around and hardening Pharaoh's heart as well. God wasn't making Pharaoh evil. Pharaoh already was evil. And God, in his judgment, turns Pharaoh over to himself. It's exactly what God is doing to the people of Judah in the book of Isaiah. And that's exactly what God is doing with Israel in regards to their rejection of Jesus in the gospel of John. What we have going on here is what some call a judicial hardening. God is judging the people. He is turning them over to themselves, to their own sinful desires. He is giving them what they want, and they are plunged into further darkness, and that is the worst judgment of all. That's a foretaste of hell. And John is comparing this generation of Jews in Jesus' day to their forefathers in Isaiah's day. And he's saying that because of the people's constant unbelief and rejection in Jesus, of Jesus, God is judging them, and He is judging them with further unbelief, and they are turned over to their own sinful desires. It's the worst judgment of all, my friends, to be turned over to yourself and your own sin. One writer is helpful when he says that God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. So as we think about what's happening here, we need to recognize both, we need to recognize simultaneously both the free choice of man and the sovereign choice of God in all of this. Those who rejected Jesus did so out of their own will. They chose to do that. They loved the darkness more than the light. They chose to reject the light, and they are held responsible and accountable for their choice because they would not believe. At the same time, God sovereignly judged them, making it so that they could not believe and plunges them into further darkness. The people would not believe, and then God makes it so that they could not believe as an act of judgment. Friends, the Bible never pits God's sovereignty against human choice and responsibility. We do. We pit them against one another. But the Bible doesn't. It assumes both at the same time. Steve Lawson, in his book on Charles Spurgeon, it's called The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon, he writes that throughout his ministry, Spurgeon sought to maintain the important balance the Scriptures give to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Emphasizing one of these truths to the exclusion of the other, Spurgeon believed, would result in an unbalanced ministry. Spurgeon was once asked how he could reconcile the apparent contradiction between these two truths, and he replied, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. And Spurgeon confessed this. He said, where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. While it's great to know how Spurgeon was able to embrace both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it's even better to clearly see how the Spirit-inspired apostles embrace both. 
shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter ties both of these realities together when he confronts his fellow Jews and says, let me see if I have it up here. Did I get it up here on the screen? I did not. Let me read it to you. Acts 2.23, this is what Peter says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is clearly saying that God planned that men would do this to Jesus, and at the same time, he's holding these men responsible and accountable for their sinful choice. He's saying, you did it. And so instead of us banging our head against the wall and trying to figure out how the realities of God's sovereignty and man's choice works together, you won't figure it out, okay? I'm going to save you a lot of work. You will not be able to piece all of this together with your own limited human brain. And so instead, we're just better off accepting what the Bible says and resting in what God says in another section of Isaiah's writings. Isaiah 55, God says, "'My thoughts are not your thoughts.'" Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The next thing that we see is that God's saving will will triumph. God's saving will will triumph. While to the uninformed observer, the rejection of Jesus appears to be a failure and a defeat of God's plan, It is the very rejection that accomplishes God's goal, which is the salvation of wicked sinners, both Jew and Gentile, all over the world. Bounce your eyes back up to verse 32, where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Amazingly, the unbelief of Israel, Jesus' rejection by his own people, was the path that God planned for him so that he would die in our place and make salvation possible for the whole world. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 that Jesus would bear the sins of many, and those sins would be punished in Christ, that Jesus would suffer and die and experience God's wrath on behalf of sinners to save them. It was all part of the plan. And the Apostle John tells us to what end in John 3.16 that Whosoever should believe in Jesus should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. And the rejection of Jesus by the Jews opened up salvation to the world. The Apostle Paul explores this in great detail in Romans chapter 11, where he helps us wrestle with this question, has God failed? And he comes to the exact same conclusion as the Apostle John did, absolutely not. Jesus' rejection by His people was not a failure of God's plan. It actually served to achieve God's plan. Apostle Paul says in Romans eleven seven that Israel was hardened. Again, that's a judicial hardening. And Paul also quotes from Isaiah, interestingly enough, uh, this time from Isaiah 29, 10. And Paul says, quoting from Isaiah, as it is written, God gave them that's Israel, a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then Paul says something very stunning in verse 11. He reveals that the end goal of Israel's hardening is to open up the way of salvation to the whole world. And so he says in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble, the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. 
So God is going to save the Gentiles through all of this. But it gets even better. Because one of the things Paul's trying to do in Romans 11 is not only explain why Israel rejected Christ and the gospel, but Paul also wants to demonstrate that God has not ultimately rejected the Jewish people. That despite Israel's rebellion and despite God's judicial hardening of Israel, that hardening is temporary. And God has every intention of showering His grace upon the Jews as well. And so, he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their, sal- their, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. God's not abandoned the Jewish people, although many of them abandoned Him by rejecting Jesus. But just as Israel's rejection of Messiah opened up the way of salvation for multitudes of Gentiles, so the global reception of Messiah by the Gentiles will stir the hearts of the Jewish people and restore in them a longing for God, and it's going to lead to a future widespread salvation of many Jews. And that leads to Paul's climactic conclusion in verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, "'Lest lest you be wise in your own sight,' I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And so, again, what seemed to be a defeat of God, what seemed to be a setback for God, actually is the means for God to save the world as the cross of Christ draws all men to Himself. And through the cross, uh, God rescues multitudes of Gentiles and multitudes of Jews and makes them into one new people, a redeemed people, a united people, an interracial and intercultural family made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what Jesus means when He says, I'll draw all people to Myself, all people from everywhere, from all over. Different races, different languages, different backgrounds, different cultures. I'm going to enfold them all into the people of God. God takes the rejection of Messiah, and that rejection becomes the centerpiece of His plan to rescue the nations. For Jews demand signs, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But... To those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Finally, what else we see in this passage is God's compassionate will is that you believe. God's compassionate will is that you believe. We see in verse 42... And we're back in John 12 now. We see in verse 42 that some of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. All throughout the Gospel of John, we are given examples of shallow, inauthentic belief. And we see it here again. But the chilling part is what is revealed to be the barrier, the hindrance to the belief of these people. What's the barrier? What's the hindrance? Look at verse 43. The barrier is glory. 
namely, their own. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's, it's reminiscent of what Jesus said a few chapters back in, uh, in John chapter 5, verse 44, when he asked, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They were more interested in the praise of man, the applause of man, the approval of man. That's the kind of glory they wanted. And folks, it's the kind of glory we want. We are, as one preacher said, glory thieves, craving self-glory more than God's glory, robbing Him of glory so we can look better. We think that being highly esteemed by the world, being popular, being cool, being in the spotlight, getting Facebook and Instagram likes. We think that's, all, that, that's where it's all at. That, that's what we think we really need. We are so afraid of what other people think of us. And we sit around, and, and we wonder about that, and we think about, what do other people think about us? Well, guess what? They aren't thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Because we are so enamored with our own desire to be great. And we want the, that kind of glory so bad that we will sell God out for it. My prayer for you is that you will come to see that chasing after your own glory will never bring peace and joy and satisfaction. It's a house of cards, and it will collapse. But even in spite of man's hostility towards God and man's quest for self-glory, we see a final compassionate plea from Jesus in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, John wrote this after Christ died and after Christ ascended to heaven. So what does this mean for us, right, like here? What does this mean for his readers? How, how do we do this without Jesus here among us? How do we believe? He said that, he said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. How do we see Jesus? I think the next several verses... We're told, verses 47 through 50, see if, you, see if you can pick up the emphasis here of Jesus as we read this together. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. <clears throat> the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Did you catch the emphasis there? There's an emphasis on the words, the words of Jesus. Eight times you've got talk of Jesus' words and what he has spoken we don't have Jesus walking around in the flesh with us anymore, but we have His Word. And all will rise and fall based on what they do with this book, with this Word. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. You see, there's, there's people who say that they love Jesus. They say that they admire Jesus. They, they say they want to emulate Jesus. But they don't want to accept all that He says. 
they don't receive His Word. Jesus equates not receiving His Word with rejecting Him, and that same Word that, uh, that they reject will judge them on the last day. So the point here is that even though Jesus is not walking among us in the flesh anymore, Jesus has left us everything we need for our life and for a relationship with Him in His Word. If you do not yet believe and you are unsure about Jesus, I would encourage you to go to the Scriptures, go to His Word. If you don't have a Bible, let me know. I'll make sure that you get one. If you need help understanding the Bible, let me know. We will go through it together, you and I one-on-one. Love to do that. Love to do that sort of thing. And in the Scriptures, you will meet Jesus in its pages. You will read Jesus' own words. And if you are a glory thief, if you're a glory thief, you will encounter something that will stop you dead in your tracks, which is the glory of Jesus. Again, verse 41 says that what Isaiah saw and wrote of and spoke of, indeed what all the prophets who wrote this book and saw and wrote of and spoke of, is the glory of Jesus. Jesus told the people that the Scriptures spoke of Him. If you are a glory thief, be warned, you will read this book, and you'll see that you're not the hero of the story. You're not the star of the show. You're not in the spotlight. It's not about you. Jesus is in the spotlight. Jesus is the star. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the main character. And in this book, you will see His glory revealed. And at that point, you have a choice. You can can close this book, run away from it because you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And if you do that, you're a fool. One of my pastor friends the other day said that in our quest for self-glorification, it's like we're at this massive rock concert, and the spotlight is on the stage, and it's pointed right at the the singer, and all the attention is on on the singer. But we're not the singer. We're the drunk guy in the crowd being escorted out of the arena because we bum rushed the stage and tried to grab the mic. We, we reach for a glory that is not ours, and we end up humiliated and shamed. And the Scripture says, whoever exalts himself will be humble. So you can try to do that if you want with God. You can try to rush the stage, but it's not going to work because it's not your show. And it's not what you need anyway. Your soul won't be satisfied with your own glory. So you can close this book if you want, and good luck with that. Or you can keep reading. You can keep reading, and you can be floored by His glory. The glory of God found in Isaiah 53, the glory of a a God who becomes a servant and dies on a cross for the sins of the world, high and lifted up, a glory that offended Jesus' enemies and offends people today because the cross communicates that we deserve the death penalty, and the cross communicates that only Jesus can save us and that we can't save ourselves. You can read this and see the glory of God in Isaiah 53, and you can read this and you'll see the glory of God found in Isaiah chapter 6, where He is high and lifted up, not on a cross, but on a throne, a scene where, where we see God is sovereign and in the center and not man. 
Both the glory of Isaiah 53 and the glory of Isaiah 6 are threatening to us. They threaten our man-centered glory. When we are confronted by the glory of God in the Scriptures, and when we respond to it rightly, something beautiful happens. Feel free to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 as we come full circle. This is where we began the message. This is where we will end. In chapter 6, as we've discussed already, Isaiah is confronted by the glory of God. It's a glory that really exalts God, and it lays man low. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And look at Isaiah's reaction in verse 5 when he is confronted by the glory of the Lord. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Pharisees were too busy looking at themselves to really perceive the glory of Jesus. But Isaiah gets it. He gets it. He recognizes his own need. He recognizes his own sinfulness. And he is humbled and laid low, and he is undone. Because Isaiah sees himself not in the light of what other people think about him, but in the light of the purity and the perfection and the holiness and the glory of God. And what happened to Isaiah when he he came to grips with his own sinfulness and with his own need? In verse 7, Isaiah is told, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Only when Isaiah abandons abandons his own quest for glory and really sees and is consumed with God's glory, only when he humbly confesses his sin before God, does that sin that separate him from God become done away with. And so now the glory of God is not a threat to Isaiah. Instead, it becomes his life. As Isaiah decreases and God increases... As that happens, then Isaiah gets the very best thing. He gets God. It's why Isaiah can write later on in chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Isaiah could write that with confidence because he knew what it was like to turn away from the glory of men which does not satisfy and be consumed with God's glory that does satisfy. A glory that the Apostle John reminds us was the very glory of Jesus. And so, friends, the cure for our sick, vain, self-centered glory-seeking is to be enraptured and enthralled by the glory of Him. To see and savor Jesus Christ. Friends, if you would today recognize your own sinfulness, your own guilt before God, your own need for a Savior, if you recognize that you have been seeking after your own glory, that will never satisfy. And you haven't been seeking after the glory of God, which does satisfy. There's hope for you today. If you call on the name of the Lord and trust in Christ today, this same Jesus who is rejected and despised by His own people, this same Jesus 
who suffered torment and shame for sinners like you and me, who poured out His blood as a sin offering for all who believe. If you trust in that Jesus, you will find forgiveness and salvation and glory. True glory. The best kind. And you will not be overcome by the darkness because you will become a child of light. Let's pray.